Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. Uh, this is Andrew from San Francisco. As always, not Michael Kimmich. My name is Andrew Keen, and uh, I'm the host of Keenon. I'm talking to you, as always, from San Francisco on the west coast of the United States. Um, it is December the 23rd. It's a rather rainy, gray day in San Francisco. And I guess probably 2021 has been a rather rainy, gray day, uh, gray year in American life, particularly in foreign policy. It's not still clear what kind of foreign policy Joe Biden is pursuing. And this is a subject that we're going to talk about in today's show. Lots of headlines about Biden's foreign policy. Is he the tough guy, which he might sometimes be when he puts his dark aviator style glasses on? Or is he the pussycat easily pushed around? Um, is he rebuilding Americans' global alliances, as this Washington Post editorial suggests, uh, in a post-Trump America? Or is he continuing the Trumpian policy of going it alone? Um, here we have him in his aviator shades. He's a foreign policy realist, according to this uh, piece. I'm not sure what a foreign policy realist is, particularly in the American context. Certainly, he's been betting on democracy. Uh, my old friend Edward Luce, who writes for the Financial Times and uh, the FT's uh, America correspondent, is suggesting that Biden's foreign policy is built around a, a re-engagement a re with the idea of democracy, America perhaps being the leader of the democratic world, America perhaps even being the leader of a, a place that we once called the West, although that term now is perhaps falling out of favor, becoming politically incorrect. Um, there's COVID, of course. How is that playing out in terms of Biden's approach to the world? It's one of the, the most global of crises, Omicron and COVID. It has no respect for borders. So how is that going to play out in American foreign policy? Um, American foreign policy, of course, in 2021 has in some ways been a series of catastrophes, particularly in Afghanistan. So what to make of America's role, new role, old role in the world, what America should be or has been in 21 and could be in 2022? I'm thrilled that uh, my guest today is one of America's leading thinkers on foreign policy. His name is Michael Kimmage. He's book that came out last year, very controversial and interesting, The Abandonment of the West, The History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy, is one way of thinking or rethinking American foreign policy and American relations with the world in the early part of the 21st century. And I'm thrilled that Michael is joining us from, as he suggested to me in the introduction, of all places, Washington, D.C., it's the only place you could talk from, Michael, given the nature and argument in your book, isn't it? Well, indeed so. And, and thank you so much for, uh, for having me, Andrew, and for initiating this conversation from San Francisco. The Abandonment of the West, Michael, a very provocative title. Um, but it's not America 
abandoning its Western alliances. The book is about an American abandonment of the idea of the West. Is that fair? Uh, that's entirely correct. Uh, and, you know, I should add that the book was published in April of 2020. So it's in no way a referendum on the Biden presidency. That was, you know, only a possibility when the book came out. Um, but the book uh, focused uh, exactly, as you say, on the idea of the West and the sort of status of it uh, in 2020 uh, as imperiled both from the right and from uh, the left uh, and, and therefore in danger of, uh, of abandonment. Michael, we're not going to bore everyone, though, with an endless discussion of Donald Trump, are we? I mean, this book is bigger than Donald Trump. Most books are bigger. All books, I think, are bigger than Donald Trump. I understand that you couldn't have um, predicted uh, the victory of Joe Biden. But I, I, I'm curious, what do you think Biden would think of your book? You're an old foreign policy guy as well as a professor at American University. I'm sure you know him or you certainly know people who are around him. Do you think he would agree with your thesis that America needs to re-embrace this idea of the West? Well, I think the answer is yes and no. I mean, I can say with pride that I know that uh, uh, he was then Anthony Blinken, now he's Secretary of State Blinken, has read the book and uh, is appreciative of its arguments and uh, also of its of its recommendations. So, you know, I can't vouch for the president knowing about the book or certainly having read it, but uh, uh, there are people in the Biden administration who sort of know of the arguments that I'm trying to make. And so let me lay out two separate responses to your question. You know, I think on the one hand, um, the way in which I define the West in the book, which is a narrative of liberty and self-government that's transatlantic in nature and really goes back to the 18th century, uh, you know, I think that that narrative is quite dear to uh, the heart of Joe Biden. I mean, he's made a strong effort to revive the transatlantic alliance um, you know, through meetings, uh, at times through concessions, such as with the Nord Stream 2 pipeline uh, with Germany. Uh, and he consistently presents Europe, not just as a strategic and military ally of the United States, but as a partner uh, in the kind of foreign policy work that the U.S. most wishes to do in, in the projection of, uh, of democratic values. So, you know, in that sense, um, uh, Biden, I think, is fully in tune with my book or, you know, more precisely, my book is, is, is quite in tune with the Biden administration. But the other answer to your question, Andrew, uh, is that the book really emphasizes culture, not just alliances and the technical aspects of foreign policy. What it emphasizes is the need for a cultural narrative. Uh, and there I've seen very little from the Biden administration. So, for example, he went to Europe in the summer of 2020 and he worked uh, with the European allies of the U.S., but he made no appearance at a monument or uh, said really nothing. Well, monuments uh, these days, Mike, I didn't, you don't need me to tell you this, m monuments are dangerous places for politicians to to go to because uh, today's monument can be tomorrow's uh, enemy of the people. We live in these strange times when monuments in some ways um, ignite more passion than live people. Well, precisely. I mean, that there's that controversial nature to it. You can't engage in cultural arguments about the West or other things without offending and annoying certain constituencies and that's the incentive that some politicians have to steer clear of that. But there's well, also we're a in great the business, cost. Michael, of annoying people. So let's um, let's define what you mean by the West. I looked it up on Wikipedia, which seems to know everything, and they weren't particularly enlightening. They talked about the Western world. How would you define this idea of the West? 
Well, it has a thousand definitions. So in that sense, Wikipedia is not uh, is not wrong. It goes back to classical antiquity, whereas when the Greeks thought of themselves as a liberty-loving West vis-a-vis -vis the Persian East, and you see those you know, sort of patterns replicated throughout European history, the Eastern versus the Western half of the Roman Empire. Uh, in the First World War, Second World War, there was you know, a sort of Western alliance against Eastern opponents, and you can define that through ideas, you can define it through national security, you could put religion into the mix. I mean, there are a hundred, uh, at the very least, a hundred different definitions of the term, and many of them are mutually exclusive. So it's not clear by any means. The way in which I defined it in the book, trying to cut through some of that complexity, was the way that it matters most for American foreign policy. Uh, and this is, uh, as I said a moment ago, a narrative of liberty, uh, the idea that you have non-authoritarian uh, self-government and as of that idea as embedded in the work of, of foreign policy. So going back to Thomas Jefferson, whom I cite in the book, America's first secretary of state and an important diplomat, among other things, uh, Thomas Jefferson had this idea of the ball of liberty. And the job of the United States is to have the ball of liberty sort of roll forward globally, whether in France in the 1780s, uh, other parts of Europe, uh, or elsewhere. And that's just an idea that resonates throughout American foreign policy and is tied very importantly with ideas and notions of the West. So we could define it a lot of other ways. That's the way I chose to define it for this project because of its emphasis on foreign policy. Uh, again, Michael, you don't need me to tell you this because you're, you're, you're as, uh, as aware as anyone, but bringing up Thomas Jefferson and liberty together in the same sentence is very controversial these days, given Jefferson's relationship or lack of relationship with the African-American community as an owner of slaves, as perhaps a hypocrite or certainly at best someone with deep contradictions in his thinking about freedom. Does this undermine the concept of the West when you call on someone like Jefferson as one of its founding fathers in terms of freedom? And yet he was a massive slave owner. Uh, it, it, it doesn't to me. I mean, I think that... Uh... You know, there is a tradition that runs from Jefferson to Woodrow Wilson, who's another, uh, you know, sort of deeply controversial figure. He, to put he it segregated mildly, the federal yeah. workforce. He was a proponent of segregation. Wasn't keen um, on the Jews either, was he? Yeah, so he's, he's you know, sort of problematic uh, in many of the ways that Jefferson was, although Wilson wasn't a, a, a slaveholder. Uh, and well, you couldn't be a slaveholder at the beginning of the 20th century. There weren't any slaves left, were there? Correct. Yeah. So he was he was, you know, of a different world in a way. But his attitudes went back. He would have been a slave owner probably had he been able to. He might he have was, had some Jewish know, slaves. The first uh, the first southern president after the Civil War. Uh, and he had a lot of, um, you know, sort of traditionally white southern uh, attitudes for sure. Uh, and. You know, you can find this strain running through throughout American politics. I'll say in a moment how I try to engage that uh, in the book, but I want to stick with your question as to whether this sort of invalidates the uh, the larger argument. But there's a significant contribution of figures like Jefferson and Wilson to what I think of as the best of American foreign policy, which has nothing to do with race or the legacy of slavery in the United States, uh, and everything to do with a certain conception of how you approach uh, foreign policy. What they brought to American foreign policy, which I continue to think of as a as a good thing, uh, and it's just a matter of the historical record that these are the ones who brought it into the picture, was this idea of deliberation, which for them, you know, sort of drew upon the American democratic tradition and 
projected that onto the international arena. So instead of spheres of influence, balance of power, uh, and empire, ideally, foreign affairs is to be conducted through compromise, deliberation, through dialogue. So you know, you really wouldn't have the United Nations without Woodrow Wilson, and in a way, you wouldn't have Woodrow Wilson without uh, the figure of Thomas Jefferson. Uh, behind him. So in a moment, we can get into the hypocrisy and the contradictions and the dark side, but I think that that's a very real uh, contribution that runs the, precisely. Well, I, I'm curious, Michael, uh, would the world be any poorer without the United Nations? It would be. Um, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's uh, uh, an easy uh, institution to see the shortcomings of, but it stands for something very significant, uh, and it stands for the capacity of great powers uh, to sit on the Security Council and to deliberate. Now, <laughs> does that resolve a lot of problems? Obviously, it doesn't, but I think it resolves some problems, and I think the symbolism is enormously uh, significant. We just I want to get into ourselves. the details of your thesis and talk historically, because it's a very historical book, and it's a fascinating book. But I'm curious, the other side of the coin, the other side of the, the Jefferson-Wilson coin might be a more muscular foreign policy president like Teddy Roosevelt. Is he the bad guy when it comes to the ideal of the West? Or is he someone who's more complicated? He also was someone, of course, who embraced the land and the environment, certainly more than uh, than, than someone like Wilson. Yes. Um, well, he was, by the standards of his time, as, as was Wilson, was a progressive. They thought of themselves uh, as reformers and, in a sense, on the left side of the, of the political spectrum, which is interesting to uh, to con contemplate, I, I I don't make Teddy Roosevelt out in the book to be a villain, and don't see him entirely as such. Certainly on domestic politics, as you suggest, he's he's a figure of of sort of multiple legacies, environmentalism, uh, as well as other uh, you know perhaps less uh, attractive legacies. But when it comes to foreign policy, what I dislike about Teddy Roosevelt, and you know write about extensively in the book, is what I describe as a kind of messianic streak in American foreign policy, which does have an imperial uh, undertow, and that is, you know, very conspicuously a part of Teddy Roosevelt's profile uh, and and point of view. The sense of entitlement that he had vis-a-vis -vis Latin and South America uh, is um, uh, is something quite troublesome. And of course, Teddy Roosevelt is an outspoken imperialist uh, in a way that even Woodrow Wilson, who could be characterized as such, perhaps, but Teddy Roosevelt really embraced the idea of empire. Uh, and imperialism. So you use the word muscular, there's a kind of uh, uh, aggressive strain uh, to American foreign policy, and I do associate it with figures like Teddy Roosevelt, and that's not uh, what I'm eager to celebrate in the abandonment of the West. Michael, you're a, a, a thinker and a historian very much, borrowing from the European tradition. I'm curious in terms of models of European diplomacy, I would assume that Napoleon and Bonapartism would be the model that you're not particularly keen on. But would you be sympathetic to conservative, strategic foreign policy thinkers like Metternich or other conservatives in the European tradition? Who's your your model? And don't say Churchill, because we talk too much about Churchill on this show. Right. No, I think uh, absolutely. And I'm not sure if this <clears throat> comes out of the book or comes out of other uh, areas of interest of mine. But absolutely, I think Metternich and Bismarck in the 19th century are brilliant conservative thinkers when it comes to international affairs. Uh, and one of the things that very much appeals to, to me about them, and perhaps this does flow into the arguments that I make in the book, is that they were able to see a world with limits uh, and have um, 
you know, they invested real intelligence in the management of those uh, of those limits. They were able to moderate some of their aspirations and agendas. It wasn't taking over the world. It wasn't sweeping ideas that moved them necessarily. It was a sort of politics of, of incremental limits and crisis management. And it certainly served 19th century Europe uh, very well. And I did think it? Did it, Michael? I mean, Metternich put down the revolutions of 1848. The Bismarckian solution in Germany didn't turn out so well. Um, isn't there a need to incorporate some embrace of political idealism in contrast to a Metternich? I suppose but, you know, if, if you compare what becomes comes before and what comes after with Metternich and Bismarck, I mean, what you have before is the Napoleonic Wars, which were enormously bloody. And then what comes after Bismarck, when the system he put together with great refinement collapses, is the First World War. Uh, and then, of course, you have after that the ideological zealotry of the Second World War. So, yes, there's a need, and I try to argue for this in the book, to act on the best ideas uh, of domestic politics uh, and to act on the best idealism uh, that's accessible, uh, but not in a way that seeks to remake the world. Uh, and one of the things that appeals to me about the idea of the West, which is shot through with difficult contradictions and, and dark sides aplenty, but one of the things that appeals to me is that it has a kind of discreteness. The West is uh, a discrete entity. Uh, it's not to be confused with the world. <laughs> the point is not to colonize the world not to project Western ideas in every different direction, uh, but to make the West be a good and responsible West in its own terms. Uh, and to that degree, figures like Metternich and Bismarck, because of the limits in their perspective, I think have a certain appeal. And, and the limit-breaking politicians like Napoleon, Hitler, uh, others you know, are to a degree the victims of their own ambition. Arguably some American politicians like uh, JFK. We'll get to those after the break. We are talking to Michael Kimmich, um, the author of The Abandonment uh, of the West, The History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy, very relevant today as Joe Biden perhaps struggles to redefine or define America on the global stage in the early part of the 21st century. Uh, we will be back, Michael, in about 64 seconds to talk more about your book. I want to get into the weeds. I want to talk about your narrative of, 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 of abandoning the West in American foreign policy. So we'll be back in a couple of seconds. Great. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected 
uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keynote. We are back with Michael Kimmage, the uh, Washington, D.C.-based author of The Abandonment of the West. Fascinating. It is a new book, Michael. It came out last year, but that's still relatively new in publishing history. As, as relevant, I think, in late 2021 as it was this time last year when it came out. Um, the book is a narrative of... Um, of the West or the idea of the West. It begins with the birth of the idea and it ends in, in, essentially in what you call perhaps the suicide of the West and then a post-Western foreign policy. What is the Colombian Republic, 1893? What bore the rise of the West in America? So the Colombian Republic, uh, um, I define in, 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 in two ways, 1893 to uh, to, to roughly the First World War. 1893 is an important date in American history because it's the year in which the Chicago World's Fair uh, was held, 401st anniversary of, 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 of the arrival of Columbus in the, uh, in the Americas. Uh, and the Politically Chicago incorrect these days. We're not supposed to mention Christopher Columbus, are we, Michael? Well, that's in a way... Wasn't the he a bad guy or isn't he considered a bad guy now? That's 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 for sure in many circles, and uh, in a way, that's the point of the first chapter because it helps me to frame the book around the final chapter, which is described as the post-Columbian Republic. And I try to get into the way in which Columbus has become, at the very least, a very awkward figure in American history, if not a outright reviled one. But that certainly wasn't the case between 1893 uh, and uh, and 1917. In fact, it sort of comes after a long period of, of almost obsession with Christopher Columbus and this notion of Columbia, of the United States as a kind of republic created in the name of Christopher Columbus. That's, of course, District of Columbia, Washington, D.C., where I sit, reflects that, uh, that uh, fascination uh, and admiration for Christopher Columbus. His story is on the doors of the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., um, graces the names of uh, a number of American rivers, yeah, you uh, uh, you made the, the the building or the rebuilding of Washington D.C. Uh, the Macmillan plan, the building of the National Mall, as being sort of the core of the C Colombian Republic. So architecture, um, imperial pomp, in a sense. Well, I'm not sure if it's imperial, but certainly pomp uh, is key to this uh, Colombian Republic. Yes, and this is really what emerges from the Chicago World Fair of 1893, the architecture was neoclassical, so it was meant to signify a kind of debt of gratitude uh, between the United States and the ancient uh, the world of European antiquity. That was par for the course in the 1890s. You see it all across American public and civic architecture, but it really is <laughs> extreme at the Chicago uh, World's Fair. And what you see in, in the cultural world, extending from universities to architecture, 
to literature to philosophy is an effort to write the United States into a European narrative. This is very clear in the 1890s, the beginning of the 19th century. In a sense, what you see is the effort to affirm the United States as a Western country, uh, as a country that has adopted the ideas, the ideals, uh, the cultural styles, the aesthetic uh, of the West. And that's very much in the architecture of Washington, D.C. You mentioned the Macmillan plan. That's a turn of the 20th century plan that gives us the natural, National Mall uh, and a lot of the set piece architecture of the United States, including the Jefferson Memorial to return to that controversial figure. Uh, is a product of the... Uh, 1893 was, I don't remember exactly what happened in European history at, in that year, but of course, at that point, you had an English parliamentary democracy, you had one of the French parliamentary democracies, I'm not sure which one, um, you had incoherence in Russia, sort of the the bubbling up of revolutionary movements, you had an independent Germany, a Bismarckian Germany. What European tradition in particular are you talking about? You know, I think it's a very particularly American notion of what Europe is. It's sort of Europe as a place of great art or Europe as a place of, of high civilization. It's not so much the politics of Europe that in 1893 would have attracted Americans. They were, you know, self-confident to the point of arrogance about the excellence of their own political system, but it's more European culture. That there's a kind of cultural story uh, and in a way culture was almost equated with Europe as if to be cultured was to have a knowledge and education in, in European thought and European uh, European styles. This is the era in Europe and in the United States of the Grand Tour where to be an educated person meant you would go to Rome and to Paris and um, to Oxford and all of these places and sort of take it in and that's what made you uh, educated. So there's this fascination, obsession really with, with Europe, a certain amount of deference. You could look at the United that States. That fascination still. wasn't replicated though, was it, Michael? By Europeans, in, in the, uh, fascinated by the United States in the 1890s. I mean, there definitely. were some, I mean, obviously Tocqueville a little earlier, uh, Dickens, but there was a general indifference or contempt for America and Europe. Well, Europe looked at the United States to a degree rightly in the 1890s as, as provincial. It was on the on the periphery, it was not, um, you know, the center of the world in the way that Europe was in the 1890s. Europe in the 1890s is at the absolute apex of its economic and geopolitical power. And the United States is a, is a newcomer. But that's what I would identify as the sort of second trend that I see in the Colombian Republic. So the first is very much this cultural attachment. Yeah, and then you talk about in Chapter 2, the case for the West and then the rise of the West. Uh, so case for the West, 1919 to 1945, I guess, made primarily by Wilson and FDR, and then the rise of the West, 1945 to 1963, in the post-Second World War, heat of the Cold War. Is that fair? Well, let me break that down just for a moment, because the case for the West is something that really happens in American universities. Uh, and uh, in the 1920s, 1930s, this is a period sometimes referred to as the period of isolationism in American foreign policy that's probably not entirely accurate. The U.S. is still quite active, especially in the domains of commerce and economics. So the U.S. is a world power in the 1920s and 1930s and uh, is pursuing that up to a point. Uh, but the place where the West is really born in American life after the Chicago World's Fair, after this neoclassical architecture, is in the American university and begins at Columbia University around 1918, 1919, is that they introduced what was called the Western Civilization Curriculum sometimes the great books curriculum, Western Civ, mm -hmm. it has different names. Uh, but that 
curriculum spreads to the University of Chicago and then spreads throughout higher education in the United States in the 1920s and 30s. And also, if you look at collegiate architecture in the U.S. in the 20s and 30s, it's either neoclassical, uh, referencing things like uh, the civic architecture in Washington, D.C., or it's pseudo-Gothic. This would be the campus of Yale University or Duke, built in the 20s and 30s to look like sort of ancient Gothic European is, it the, uh, is this the idea that's articulated in Alan Bloom's Closing of the American Mind, um, sort of uh, uh, a non-relativistic way of looking at the world? As you say, it was born in, Colum uh, uh, in Chicago and in, 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 at Columbia, the great books. Is there a polemic hiding underneath your, um, your abandonment of the West book about foreign policy? Well, a nostalgia for a a pre-relativistic world? I, I don't know if there's a polemic. I, I conclude the book with recommendations, which I'd be happy to talk through with you. Uh, and so, yes, there's a kind of, you could say, normative component to the book, but I really try to write the rest of the book as history and sort of understand what was happening and present it as objectively as uh, as I can and, 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 you know, not to celebrate and not to, you know, sort of criticize uh, excessively. Uh, and if we go back to this period of the 20s and 30s, to me, it's not so much relativism that's uh, the key issue. I think that uh, you have this, you know, sort of deep celebration of European ideas. You know, the first PhD program in American studies in the United States is 1937. So prior to that, you can't even do a PhD uh, in American studies. That really wasn't what it was to be educated. It was such a European mode. And that's interesting to me. And I think it paid some dividends in terms of uh, the quality of the material that was being taught, but there was also a great deal that was excluded. Uh, and, you know, there's a tacit and more than tacit idea that European ideas sort of figure in American culture as white. Uh, and American universities in the 20s and 30s were manifestly blind to the cultural meaning of that and the cultural dynamics uh, behind this commitment to Europe. So that's nothing that I would want to celebrate at all. Uh, and it's very much part of the mix. So I'm not, you know... Reaching back to this period with nostalgia, um, you know, I think there was the good and the bad kind of mixed together. But I think it's just very notable, especially for what's going to come later in American foreign policy. It's just notable that the 20s and 30s, you have this dispersal, you could say, of the Western idea. It's really everywhere. Uh, and it was fashionable. Uh, it was, you know, in the eyes of many of the participants, it was sort of exciting. It was a new idea, uh, this idea of, uh, of education oriented along the lines of the West. Uh, and it was just pervasive. That's, to me, the most important fact as a historian. It was sort of everywhere you look in the culture, there's this celebration of the West. Well, but isn't it a little bit more complicated than that? In the 1930s, the idea of the West was also the rise of fascism and of Bolshevism. Absolutely. Uh, both of which were born with, quote unquote, Western ideas. So the notion of Europe was itself at best, in crisis in the 1930s. Absolutely. No, that's that's uh, of the essence in the 1920s and 30s. You have in um, European fascism a figure like Mussolini, a great attachment to the ancient world, lots of neoclassical architecture. Uh, you see the same thing with Hitler's Germany. And, and fascist Italy and fascist Germany thought of themselves as the defenders of the West. They thought of them as defenders of the West against American capitalism and American racial mixing. And they thought of themselves as defenders of the West against the Bolsheviks. Could, could you uh, argue, Michael, and I, I don't think you'd argue this, but some people might argue that the mistake in American self-identity in the 1920s and 30s was not to, that, that it didn't incorporate 
enough of an obsession with the West that there was too much, that they should have focused on the uniqueness of America, maybe a, a, a W.E. Du Bois, um, a James Baldwin, of course, who came later, yes. or a Malcolm X. You write a lot about race in the book and the role of African-Americans in defining what being part of the West is in America. What about the issue of race, which, of course, we've done so many shows about it um, over this year, is the defining quality, if that's the right word, in American history? Yes, no, that's 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 certainly correct. Uh, and very importantly, the case in the 1920s and 30s. In fact, let's go back a little bit earlier. Let's go back to the Chicago World's Fair, which is criticized very rightly by Frederick Douglass uh, as uh, you know, sort of coding civilization, European and white. Uh, and then you had on the periphery of the Chicago World's Fair sort of exhibitions about Native Americans and uh, and Africans and others that are presented in a kind of circus-like or zoo-like uh, a zoo-like fashion. And so there was the criticism even then um, uh, in the 1890s of uh, the kinds of blinkers that the culture had and the kinds of prejudices that were uh, that were baked in. Also in the 1890s, you have W.E.B. Du Bois, you showed an image of him in a moment ago, uh, writing as a college undergraduate uh, about uh, the rush of the United States into the world of empire uh, and the racial catastrophe that's entailed uh, in that rush to empire. 1898 is the uh, Spanish-American War that turns the United States formally into an empire, uh, and Du Bois was... Uh, you know, very astute in pointing out the intersections between racial dynamics internal to the United States and racial dynamics that were getting intermixed uh, in American foreign policy. So yes, I think it's a very reasonable critique. Of course, we have the benefit of hindsight, so it's in some ways easier for us to come up with this critique, but I think it's spot on that the 1920s and 30s, you have very uh, confining perspectives in elite American culture. Uh, so shouldn't we celebrate then if that's the case and there's so much so many contradictions at best and in truth probably hypocrisy in this idea of the west that what you call the suicide of the west is actually quite a good thing the the end of this nonsense this delusion uh that it happened in in the 60s uh and now we live in a in what you call a post-columbian republic shouldn't we be celebrating that well i think one can uh, certainly, there are many who do, um, but uh, but I wouldn't. Uh, I think that when you study history, what's necessary is not just to identify the bad um, and try to expunge it and to celebrate the good. What's, I think, crucial is to understand the interaction uh, of the good and the bad. Uh, and, you know, that's very much the story of American foreign policy. So let's go back to this fraught decade of the 1930s. On the one hand, you have segregation in the United States. Uh, you have a Democratic Party that's making all kinds of deals with white Southern politicians. Um, you have an inability to see the colonial and post-colonial world uh, on, on the part of American decision makers. And all of that is, um, uh, is, uh, is, is more than unfortunate uh, and speaks to a racial perspective that American elites had at the time uh, that was truly costly. That, I think, is clear from the historical record, but it's not the only aspect of the historical record uh, that matters. This same group of decision makers, with all of their blinkers, created something utterly remarkable in Europe in the 1940s, 
uh, and also throughout the Second World War. And this was a military capacity to defeat Hitler uh, and Nazism, uh, the military capacity to respond to a uh, unprovoked attack from uh, Imperial Japan in 1941. And more than anything, I think the achievement of this generation, and it's a real achievement, was to construct these deliberative bodies, these multinational institutions after 1945 uh, that are still very much with us. So even if the UN is not the success that it was supposed to be or that people hoped for it to be, you have NATO uh, that comes from this generation. Uh, they were the ones who built that. That's of the essence for understanding European security and American foreign policy uh, in the present moment. And then you have institutions like the World Bank and the IMF, which you know, of course also have sort of mixed records, uh, but that are also, in my eyes, uh, achievements. So the same generation that had these blinders was also capable of achievements. And that's, you know, I think that's the essence of the history of this period. It contains the good with the bad. Michael, you end the book with um, some references to the uh, National Museum of African-American History and Culture, remarkable architecture achievement in Washington, D.C. Um, is this an alternative model for American foreign policy? Or is this continuing in the tradition of commitment to openness and tolerance and realism? I, I think it's 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 certainly a bit of a, a bit of both. The, the reason that the building resonates so much in the book uh, is first of all that it's placed on the National Mall. So we'll go back to the 1893 Chicago World's Fair. There is this <laughs> celebration of the West uh, architecturally that gets translated into the National Mall. Uh, of 1900 to 1920, sort of the period of construction. Uh, and this reflects, ideally, an American image, a self-image of the United States as a place of liberty uh, and self-government, the kind of openness of the mall, uh, the open green space, uh, but also the neoclassical architecture. As if to say, we got democracy, you know, they would have said we got from the Greeks. Uh, let's be aware of this heritage. Let's be aware of this tradition. And let's look at it. Uh, in an affirmative fa fashion. That's there at the heart of Washington, D.C., and we could easily go through the critique of that, but uh, I think that there's a value in uh, this architecture and what it's trying to tell us, but it's woefully incomplete. And so what I find appealing uh, very much about the African-American History Museum is that it situates itself in this line of buildings, in this place, and also in this story, because the story of the museum internally, you can't see it on the exterior of the building, but the story in the museum is the story of going from slavery to freedom, the acquisition of rights, the achievement of liberty, the expansion of self-government uh, within the American project. So that's, you know, you could say a kind of modern, more tolerant, more capacious, more imaginative view of the West than people were capable of. What's the equivalent the of the book? What's the book equivalent of the Smithsonian National Museum of African American <laughs> History? You're a, a scholar. You're a very scholarly scholar, Michael. <laughs> Uh, you cover Edward Said's Orientalism, which my sense is you see that as a sort of the seed of the crisis. This, this, I mean, if you want to define what the West is, it's probably best to do it in a negative way and read Said's Orientalism. Um, but what book could we end with? Not Said's Orientalism, which I assume um, you consider to be problematic. Do we need to go back to Bloom's Closing of the American Mind or are there better more contemporary books to rethink America's role in the world. Yes, I, I don't think it's either Said or, or, or Bloom. Um, my problem with Said is not that uh, what he says is untrue. He offers a very cogent critique uh, of um, 
what he would think of as the imperial imagination of the West. Uh, and, you know, he's a, a very brilliant analyst of that. But his solution is, let's just throw it out. Let's get rid of the West altogether. Let's create some kind of post-civilizational humanism. And uh, I don't think that that's going to work. And I think it's also too radical a rejection of what's there uh, in the past. So he's a good analyst, but to me, he doesn't really offer a constructive way forward. And Bloom uh, is phenomenally po polemical. Uh, he loved to annoy people. He's a kind of, you know, manic stand-up comedian uh, of an analyst of American universities, but uh, it's too over the top. Uh, and Is there also, an either-or book or thinker out there, Michael, who people should be reading or listening to who get this you know, right, apart from yourself? <laughs> apart from myself, yes. I suppose it does boil down to, a, uh, to an advertisement for myself in a way I find that I'll just put it this way. I don't, don't mean to be pessimistic, but the sort of space for either or books at the moment in American life uh, is small and seems to be getting uh, seems to be getting smaller. Uh, one of the things I try to do in the book is to say that the West, when it's worked in American foreign policy, say like the late 1940s, it works because it was a bipartisan idea. It was not a left wing idea. It was not a right wing idea. Uh, sort of an idea that could belong to to everyone, uh, and that feels to me like it's a spirit we need to. Should uh, people be rereading Samuel Huntingdon? Should they be rereading Walt uh, Walt Rostow? I mean, these were figures uh, very important in 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 in, uh, in the idea of America as a Western power. Um, well, Rostow. I mean, if you're interested in history, you should read Rostow, but certainly not for inspiration. He was uh, an enormously arrogant proponent of Western ideas which he understood simply as modern ideas, and he's one of the architects. Yeah, of I mean, he hit the war part. with Vietnam. I mean, there's so much to talk about here, Michael. Um, but we have to end. I just want to end in 2021 or, twenty, I guess, 2022. Uh, lot, lot, uh, lot, lots of pieces uh, in the media at the moment about foreign policy stories in 2022. Uh, earlier this week, I did an interview with Dorit Giver from the Central, uh, Central European University, George Soros's finance university, which had been in Budapest, and as I'm sure you know, got forced out and now is in Vienna, about uh, Ordon um, and the what, what she calls the Ordo-nationalist Hungary, the rise of, again, a kind of pro-Western authoritarianism in the West, uh, in Europe. How does or how should America react to Orden, to Erdogan, to Salvini, perhaps even to Boris Johnson, um, in terms of maintaining the principle of the West in the face of people like uh, Orban, who have fetishized the idea of the West, but of course, who are racist and exclusionary and sometimes quite warlike. Yes, in my view, I think that we the West, if I can speak on behalf of the West. Well, you we can be respond. the West in this show, Michael. You have my permission. <laughs> Great. Uh, then so emboldened, I'll say that we should react very, very critically uh, to these figures. Uh, two things, really. Uh, you know, sort of first, uh, uh, they show us the cost of not engaging in some of these things. In other words, if there's not going to be a more centrist, sort of bipartisan, multicultural, tolerant, effort to engage with the idea of the West, if we just shunt it off to the side for whatever reason, we're going to leave that definition to those who are, uh, you know, sort of far less scrupulous when it comes to politics, and they will define the West uh, in their fashion. So for Viktor Orban, the West is Christianity, the West is, you know, anti-Muslim, uh, it's, you know, sort of nationalist in nature, 
Um, I don't think he himself is quite a reactionary figure. Uh, he began his career sort of as a George Soros-funded scholar, you know, sort of opponent of uh, of communist Hungary. But it goes in that uh, it goes in that direction, uh, an exclusionary West, a West of of of, of arrogance, uh, a West of of sort of internal uh, superiority and hierarchies that, in the American context, probably in the European as well, are inseparable. Uh, from the worst of our uh, histories of, of, of anti-Semitism uh, and, and racism. So, you know, that story is deeply embedded, of course, in the history of the West. Uh, and it's a story that we should in no sense wish to, uh, wish to repeat. Uh, that would be, I think, uh, you know, the sort of first thing to say. But the second thing to say is that it's not enough just to critique these figures. Uh, one has to offer something uh, in response. Uh, and in that sense, to me, this image, and I, again, tried to capture it vis-a-vis -vis the African-American History Museum, this image of the story of self-government on the one hand, uh, and the story of fighting prejudice and arriving at greater tolerance on the other, uh, is crucial to articulate at the present moment. And it's crucial to articulate, this is the real challenge in, in the winter of 2021, 2022, you have to articulate this story with optimism. It can't just be a look backwards. It has to be an optimistic look forwards. I think it's doable. We can talk about Joe Biden some other time. I think he's trying. Yeah, he's I don't think Joe, I think Joe Biden is a symptom of the trying. decline rather but, uh, than, uh, than a hope. Uh, it's a fascinating conversation, Michael. My sense is it may happen, but it would happen with a, an African-American leader in the tradition of Malcolm X rather than of Barack Obama. But that's another conversation. Uh, Michael um, Kimmage, uh, your your book, um, The Abandonment of the West, is so important and relevant and controversial. I'm not sure I agree with everything in it, but it's, it's an important book to read. Congratulations on the book. You're talking to me from Washington, D.C., the symbol or America's attempt to symbolize the heart of Western civilization. What else should people be reading in these strange times, Michael, in late well, December 2021? As the lights go off. Quite I recommend a book with emphasis that has nothing to do the with the, a book that has nothing to do with the uh, the West per se, and this is Gary Steingart's new novel, Our Country Friends. Oh yeah, Gary's been on the show in the old days in the TechCrunch days. I'd love to get him back actually on the show. Is yeah, it a good book? Is, I hear it's very good. This is a masterpiece of a novel. It's just wonderful in and of itself, but it's a novel that allows us to see the pandemic through the lens of art, not through politics, not through history, not through ideology, not through polemics, but through the lens of art. And it really, in the process of reading it, it sort of ennobles you uh, as a book. So it's beautiful, it's funny, uh, it's very rewarding, uh, and uh, it's, it's sort of the novel of our moment, I would say. Good. Well, we'll have to get Gary back on the show. He was a very entertaining interview a few years ago. Love to have him back on. Michael, you have been a sensation. Excellent, controversial, not shy to take difficult positions. Uh, congratulations again on the book, um, The Abandonment in the West. Be great to have you back in 2022 to talk more. There's still a lot to talk about. We didn't talk about Kissinger. We didn't talk about JFK or FDR. So, so much more to talk about, Michael. Congratulations on the book. Happy New Year. Keep well, and we'll talk again in the new year. Thank you so much. Thanks a million, Andrew. Good luck, good luck out West. Thank you. I need it. <laughs> Thanks so much for watching this Keenon show. I hope you were inspired in some way. I hope you found it interesting. And if you want more of these kinds of shows, you need to subscribe uh, to the podcast uh, on the Apple or, or, or CastBox or Spotify platforms, all 
major podcast platforms carry the keen on show or you can also watch live uh, on my twitter page uh, my linkedin network uh, or on lit hub's uh, facebook live page um, i also hope you'll decide to follow me on substack uh, i have uh, a newsletter on substack in which i develop and expand on a lot of the themes we discuss in the uh, keen on show and i hope you'll also follow up with me personally uh, perhaps uh, to give suggestions for future shows you might email me at a.keen at me.com or you may also email me with suggestions about potential guests i'm very open uh, very eager in fact to have requests ideas of, of people with interesting new books and projects which I need to talk about. So thanks so much again for, for, for watching Keen On. I'm thrilled that you're a member of our community and I'll look forward to hearing from you in the not too distant future.